welcome to Bonnets at Dawn, the show that explores the lives and works of women writers from the 18th, 19th and 20th centuries. I'm your host, Hannah Chapman. And I am your host, Lauren Burke. And in this bonus episode that I've been hanging on to for when I go out of town and I'm traveling. So that's what's happening right now, guys. Just FYI. In this bonus episode, we are joined by Eleanor Rust and Barbara Heller who are two very special gals who met actually in our Facebook group and realized that they were fans of each other's work, which is very cool. Friend of the show, Dr. Eleanor Rust earned her PhD in classics from University of Southern California and was a fellow at the American Academy in Rome. In her spare time, she can be found talking about classic literature with fools like us on Bonnets at Dawn. I said that like I'd never heard our podcast name before, Bonnets at Dawn. (laughs) And Barbara Heller's career in film and television encompasses finding furnishings and props for many shows, including The Americans and When They See Us, location managing films for Francis Coppola, Nancy Myers, that's exciting, and Barbara Schroeder, Schroeder. which Nancy Myers film? I don't know, but that is exciting. Like The Holiday? (laughs) Barbara, did you work on the holiday? (laughs) Let me know. And Barbara is also the author of the Chronicle Edition Pride and Prejudice and Letters, which is very, very cool. And we encourage you to pick that up today, as well as the Little Women Edition, which is out now. All good. All right. Thanks, guys. Um, and I also tape intro outro later, so don't even worry about it. But I do think maybe what might be a good place to start as a refresher for a lot of our audience, uh, Eleanor, if you want to tell us a little bit about your blog. Yeah, sure. I know you were just talking about it. So I'm going to have <laughs> you basically repeat yourself. But yeah, tell us a little bit about your blog. Um, I know it's come up in our Facebook group quite a few times. So, mm-hmm. so uh, I have worked on a blog project that I called Her Reputation for Accomplishment. And my original intention was to move through all of the areas in which Jane Austen's heroines are accomplished women. Um, In every novel, there's some discussion about what women should be doing, how women should be spending their time. um, What's the right pursuit for women? What's the right level of education? What... um, uh, what the, should they be reading and doing? Uh, and so I wanted to dig into that and explore at least a little bit of each area of accomplishment. And I intended to do music and painting. and But I started with a really fundamental accomplishment, which was writing. Mm-hmm. And I originally planned to spend a couple of weeks on that. But it turned into many months of exploring how people learned to write, uh, what the purposes of writing were seen to be, and then diving into letter writing, which was seen as, well, everybody did it. Everybody wrote letters for business, for uh, family relationships, to maintain friendships. But um, social letter writing was seen as something that women excelled at. So I just dove deep into the details of how letters were written, um, how they, how people learned about letter writing, um, and dug into primary sources and taught myself how to use a quill pen 
to write in the styles of that period. And that, that took a lot longer than a couple of weeks. (laughs) Sure. That makes sense. (laughs) Barbara, how did you find Eleanor's blog? I think just by Googling, I was researching, of course, everything having to do with writing and not, you know, knowing how many facets there were to it, just in terms of the making of the paper, what sizes the paper came in that, you know, people bought big sheets and then cut it themselves to the size that they needed. And how did they get ink? And, you know, finding out that there were recipes, people made it themselves, or you could buy powder or ink sellers came down the street. And so in doing that Googling, I came across Eleanor's blog and it was a godsend because she had everything divided into these, you know, interesting chunks and had done this deep dive into the research with the primary sources and wrote about it so concisely and well. And it was, it was very, very helpful because it's a lot to understand. And at the time, you know, there was of course the assumption that people understood how letters were written, how they were mailed, how they were received, how much time it took to get a letter. And once you have more insight into it, like that fabulous scene where Caroline Bingley offers to mend Mr. Darcy's pen, you know, that is just such a brilliant interplay of, you know, the character development and her desires and also the craft of, of writing and her commenting on it. And Jane Austen, when I was looking to associate different handwriting with the characters, I felt like it wasn't a big stretch because she talks about the characters' handwriting. You know, Darcy, according to Caroline, writes very evenly and neatly. And her brother, you know, writes hastily and has blots. So <laughs> I didn't feel like I was imposing it on, on the novel, but there is a real richness there, which yes. you know, we're talking about, that when you understand more about that world, it does bring more depth to the reading of her novels and, and all novels from that time mm-hmm. period, really. Yeah. Well, she's in, she's relatively economical with those material details, but every single, once, you, once you're aware of the context, every single one of them is so telling. Mm-hmm. She doesn't include it just for window dressing. It's always super meaningful. Every, like just the way she, what, you know, you only, she only includes details of people's dress or what they eat when, when it serves the plot or serves the characterization and, uh, and letter writing is just the same. You know, I read those letters thousands of times and every time I saw something new and Mm -hmm. I really realized what Eleanor was saying about every line counting when some of the letters were paraphrased, um, when Jane writes to Elizabeth and says that Lydia has eloped, Austin paraphrases, oh, the first part of the letter was just general news about what had been going on. And then, and then she direct quotes about Lydia's elopement. So I had to create that paragraph. Mm -hmm. And in doing that, I saw that how every line of every letter contributed to something. And when you wrote just something about oh, you know, someone has come down with gout or there was a party at, you know, we went and drank tea. It just stuck out like a sore thumb. It was mm-hmm. really tricky to, I kept, we kept it, I, my sisters helped me. I kept it really short. And some of the lines were from Austin's letters, but it, it did make you really appreciate how, how polished and 
considered every line is. That um, the Lydia letter, if you the elopement letter, um, if you haven't uh, if you haven't uh, seen this edition, there's an extra detail which I particularly love. So, what piece of paper would Lydia have pulled out to uh, to write this letter? Uh, it's a fashion plate pulled from a magazine. Oh, very cool. <laughs> <laughs> I think that's a that's a great detail that I think Austin yes. would, would have loved. That you know, know, that also I learned from doing that that those magazines came unbound, mm -hmm. and you would save the and they had articles on not just fashion but politics and stories, and you would save the pages, the fashion pages, and you would bring them to the dressmaker because to have the style copied. So. Mm -hmm. It, that was wonderful because it would have meant, you know, her friend Harriet would have set them aside. And then of course, thoughtless Lydia needing a piece of paper and being lazy just grabs what's there. And it was a fun way to add some color and period detail because every, you know, there was no letterhead. People didn't have personal stationery. I was really just had white cream and brown paper and variations of brown ink to work with. So it was fun to come up with the way to bring another element in. Now, taking it back, you have a very interesting job and a job that fits in with this book. So <laughs> I, can you tell us a little bit about what you do for a living? Yes, I started off as a location manager on feature films, which was very much about finding the right apartment, house, um, restaurant, doctor's office, but that really f furthered the story. So, you know, would the character live in a brownstone with architectural detail or a glass high rise? And then locations is really grueling and I moved and I loved working with the art department. So then I started working in the set decorating department, finding the furnishings for those sets. So you're really, um, every choice that you make is really about telling the story um, of that character, where they are in their life. Um, really everything is sort of symbolic of how, who they are and how they live. So that really did tie into, you know, using these letters to represent the character. What is it about the handwriting or the ink and, not just the handwriting, but the handwriting for that specific letter. Were they in a rush? Were they, you know, feeling strong emotions? And um, so that having, you know, I brought the same sort of thinking to picking out those elements that I do when I'm thinking about betting. <laughs> right. <laughs> or, for sure. Or their china. Or, you know, how messy is their apartment? How spare, you know? Do they... Yeah letters in the oven, you know, or, you know, the refrigerator, you know, this classic, of course, the refrigerator with only Chinese takeout, you know, whatever, but finding mm -hmm. it sort of interesting ways to, con to convey something about the characters. So it, it definitely felt related. Now you've worked on one of my favorite period dramas, and I don't think we tend to think of this show as a period drama, but it totally is The Americans. Oh, yeah. Yes. Oh, yeah. wow. So 
there are a lot of time specific things that you had to source there. Yes, on very short notice. That oh gosh, that was really fun to work on that job because it was so well written and so good. Mm-hmm. But you know, every time they opened a medicine chest or the utility closet in the script, you just groan because. <laughs> You know, getting the period Band-Aid boxes, getting the right. period, you know, containers for the cleaning products, they all have, even something like a peanut butter jar, you know, they used to have metal tops mm-hmm. and other plastic. Just the shapes, the colors, it's all changed. And you, people, though, sell anything on eBay and Etsy. I mean, you can find oh old toothpaste tubes and old Band-Aid boxes. And, but you're calling people, you're writing them, you're saying, can you... If I send you a FedEx label, can you get this to FedEx tonight? Mm-hmm. And mostly they too. Thank wow. God. That's wow. amazing. Well, as somebody who was alive in the 80s, I felt that that show really evoked not the not the 80s of, of popular movies at the time, but like the real 80s of my friends' houses. Yes. Yeah. It was not the, it was not the stylish 80s. It was the mom 80s, the dad mm-hmm. 80s. Mm-hmm. Well, the creators of the show were very involved. You know, they knew what cereal box they wanted on the breakfast table. So it was, you're right, it was really informed by very specific taste of people who, and you know, I lived, you know, like me too, who were alive, very much alive then. So um, yeah, so that was, it was, that was fascinating. Was there an item that was particularly hard to source that sticks out to you? You know, it was really hard was anything technological that had to function. So um, the, you know, in the FBI office, you see those big kind of servers in that room with the beeping lights. Yes. You know, I didn't do that. One of my colleagues did, but boy, that, that was really tough. She also did for an airplane scene, she did period luggage carts. I felt really bad for her. She spent like three days and I'll stop on the phone trying to find period luggage carts. I'm trying to think of something I did. I'm sure I've blacked it out because it gets really stressful and you really don't want to remember. <laughs> but anything that had that was technological and had to function was the having to function part, yeah, that is super tough. And you know, like the in their travel agency, that machine that printed the airline tickets. You know, oh yeah, that oh, took yeah. me back. That really, that was a detail. Uh, oh yeah, the dot matrix printed boarding pass uh, kinds of things. With yeah, wow. Also, you know what else was tricky was there were scenes shot in Russia. Oh and yeah, to source yeah. things and having them sent from the Ukraine, and they're like Russian telephones. You know, for people oh wow, in Russia. So all that was complicated. Just taking it to like what gave you the idea for this book, essentially. So I was sitting where I'm sitting right now <laughs> on this couch, reading Pride and Prejudice, of course, for the millionth time. And I was reading Mrs. Gardner's letter to Elizabeth when she explains Darcy's role, which, you know, when I first read the book at, you know, 14 or 15 or whatever, I was, you know, that letter sort of probably skimmed it. But now I love that letter. I just find it so satisfying on every level that it gives Elizabeth hope again that Darcy has changed, that Darcy and the gardeners have learned to appreciate each other. And 
I was savoring it. And I thought, God, wouldn't it be nice to have that letter to hold the very letter that Elizabeth Bennett received in my hand? And then I thought, well, it'd be nice to have all the letters. And I looked online and I didn't see anything. And I counted all the letters and I was amazed that there were so many, that there were, you know, tw at least 20. There were 20, really. And I, I skipped one, I did 19. But um, so I got kind of excited about the idea of trying to create them. I'm, that it would be as though you came across a biscuit tin at a flea market and you opened it up and there were the letters inside. I was really fixated on the biscuit tin. I had this idea of Egyptian revival, deco, you know, I spent hours researching the biscuit tin. And, or I thought it could be like you got them at an auction and, but anyway, that was the, that was the initial inspiration. And um, eventually I created mock-ups of some of the letters and, you know, started talking to people in publishing. But that was the inspiration, was really just suddenly wanting to hold uh, Elizabeth's, Elizabeth's letter. And now we get to. And now we get to. <laughs> I, I think uh, some of the adaptations that I particularly love um, use the letters really well. Particularly, I'm thinking of the 1995 Pride and Prejudice, where you, you see people reading letters and you hear their voices. Um, and... Uh, uh, it's so nice that now we get to we get to, ex to experience that um, ourselves. Although I have to say, your reproductions much more historically accurate than any other uh, than any film adaptation has achieved. I have I pay attention. To say, I well, that's why I think why I was surprised when I first saw letters written in 1812 at the library. They didn't look like the movie letters at all, and that was what I had expected. Yeah. So, and actually, you know, I was. I'm glad they were different and, uh, and that the handwriting, there was so much handwriting with character. Mm. Whereas in the movies, it tends to all look a little like wedding calligraphy. That's true. Uh, so maybe you could talk a little bit about historical letter writers or the archives that you use that especially inspired the details of the project. Yeah, and I was thinking about as a bonnet's question, um, are there any uh, writers that were new to you or good reads um, in, in addition to those, those actual historical details that we might want to know about? Well, I was amazed at how many letters started with apologies for not having written sooner. <laughs> <laughs> relatable, That's, very relatable. Yeah, I still do that. <laughs> it was amazing. Um, or people um, exhorting the recipient to hurry up and write them and why haven't you written me? That was also very popular. Uh, I studied letters at the New York Public Library um, in their special collections. They have letters written in England uh, between, you know, I looked at letters written between say 1800 and 18, 1830, but I really concentrated on right around 1812. And also at the Morgan Library, where they have a huge collection, including, of course, many, many letters by Jane Austen. So I was amazed when I first saw that the letters at the New York Public Library, that they were folded in half like a greeting card. And the letter writing started on the front and then continued inside. And then the back page was for the address and the whole thing was folded up and sealed with wax. Um, and 
a lot of the letters were not as aged as I imagined they would be. You know, some, some look old and yellowed and brittle. Quite a few looked like it could have been written the month before. And because paper was made with cotton and linen, it really ages much less than later paper, which is made with wood pulp. Um, and a lot of the handwriting looked very modern as well. I mean, some of it didn't. It really depended on how people cut their quill. If it was mm -hmm. had a lot of thick and thin to me, it looked much more old fashioned than if they used a very fine point, you know, more similar to our pens today. But I really examined the letters for, um, of course, the format. And I looked a lot at the age spots that were there. I took a thousand pictures. I looked at how the wax stains penetrated the letter in multiple places. Um, I, and I, you know, the, I didn't even know that there were postal marks. I didn't understand what all these scribbles and scrawls were on the back of the envelopes. It was just utterly, not envelopes on the back pages, because of course I was surprised that there were no envelopes. So, um, and there was people, you know, scratched words out and there were carrots and sometimes they squished the word up at the end of the margin. It was all very human and and it was fun to see letters, especially at the Morgan. You know, I love Evelina and I saw letters written mm -hmm. by Fanny Burney. Oh, wow. That was really fun. And um, the handwriting for Darcy, there was Prince Edward Augustus and who was the father of Queen Victoria. And I mean, it was just like the perfect Darcy. So that, you know, I would, it was very exciting and exhilarating when, when I saw a match. Oh, wow. Wow, so you were, you were looking for characters within within your research into, yes. into specific writers. Oh, that's great. Yeah, I definitely, I wanted to have very specific reference for each character. Mm -hmm. And I wanted there to be a real contrast between the characters. So, you know, even the color of the paper, the color of mm -hmm. the ink, how much it had faded. Um, and of course, like the comic characters like Mr. Collins, you know, I just love his letters so much. <laughs> so. And Jane Austen gives us a lot of those letters. She gives yeah. a lot of those letters. And that handwriting is, I could never find one reference that struck me as pompous and cramped and sort of passive aggressive. So that, <laughs> that was a combination of all sorts of things. And, and Barry Morin's the scribe, you know, really channeled Mr. Collins as well. But mm. his letters are a hoot. I bet Jane Austen had a great time writing them. Uh, so you mentioned you mentioned some the scribes that you worked with. Um, I'm curious, did they have experience with the 19th century hand? What was it like to work with a team of scribes to to create these characters to to just bring this this project to to life on paper? You know, it was a real learning curve for me, and they were all incredibly patient and. We did a lot, a lot, a lot of back and forth. You know, I gave them the reference, they would send me samples, I would comment, they'd send me more samples. It was really important to get together in person and then do it together. Um, a lot of conversations about what this character's writing would be like. Um, I really had to, you know, there, used to writing very perfectly. So it was very hard to, for them to make mistakes and to let the pen that, you know, to not dip the pen all the time because when you uh, look at the letters, 
they start dark, they get light, they dip, they, then they're dark and light. It's just, and, and they just want to keep it consistent. So, but I must say they all mastered that and, and they had fun. And they all told me they really enjoyed um, writing and writing a character. And, mm-hmm. you know, I think when we settled on the handwriting, I think we, you know, I felt it and they felt it. Mm-hmm. It was definitely a collaborative process that mm-hmm. way. And were they were they already Jane Austen fans, or was it part uh, of your process helping them understand, understand the characters? Some no, but I did oh. I did make sure everyone you know became you know learned read Pride and Prejudice and um, and and Barry, I mean he'd read it, but he also would watch the miniseries while he worked on would watch Mr. Collins while he worked on Mr. Collins. We both <laughs> favor the uh, 1980s adaptation. The one oh. I love the 80s adaptation. That's my favorite. Mm-hmm. I think it's the most accurate Collins, too, by the way. Yeah, as, as Jane Austen describes him, sure. Yes, mm-hmm. yes. I mean, I have soft spots for many of the of the Collinses. Yes. You know, each actor brings something different to the role. But it's true, the 1980s one just, you know, seems to translate right off the page. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, mm. But it is like casting, you know, and I did worry it the same way people don't love all the casting choices in a miniseries. Sure. Is your idea of the handwriting going to match someone else's? But luckily, I don't think people have given a lot of time and thought to considering the character's handwriting. So I think that worked to my advantage. So you can be like the first adaptation somebody sees that kind of like, you know, this is the first handwriting that somebody's seeing from their characters. So you get to set the, you get to set the tone. So you mentioned uh, Jane Austen's own surviving letters, and I wondered if there are any more specific details that you borrowed from her letters, or if there are any details that you wanted to get in and just didn't find a spot for. Well, you know, Elizabeth Bennett's handwriting, I was looking at all these letters and trying to figure out what would convey her wit and intelligence and playfulness, and I just was not feeling it. And then I realized, sitting in the Morgans, surrounded by Jane Austen's letters somewhere in the building, that of course, Elizabeth Bennet's handwriting should be Jane Austen's. So that was, was uh, I was very happy to make that connection. And then um, Anna Pinto, who was the scribe who wrote Elizabeth, she, I gave her copies of some of Austen's letters and she, copied it, you know, mm. put tracing paper over it and copied it and really picked up on all the details. She talks about, you know, where she drops a bit of ink at the end mm. of a Y and um, she really captured it. And what I really noticed was the terminal letter D <laughs> that Jane Austen has a very particular swoopy way to do it. Um, and that was, that was very distinctive. And I said, that's, that's Jane Austen's D. Oh, isn't that nice? Yeah. Eleanor, I can't believe you spotted that. That's amazing. <laughs> I know. I might be the only person. Um, and that is one of those details that made me feel like this this book it was could have been calculated to to just uh, hit my favorite little obsessions uh, with Jane Austen's world. <laughs> so did every scribe have their own character or did did they double up? I'm curious. No. You mentioned. Oh, no, they all. No, they doubled up. So, so um, Anna Pinto wrote Elizabeth Bennett, and she also wrote Lydia, and uh, she wrote um, Mr. Bennett's one letter. Oh, right. Okay. Yeah. No, they all that mm-hmm. 
they were all capable of doing mm-hmm. multiple hands. And it's, and that way too, you know, we could establish certain contrasts. Mm. And, oh, you know, only one scribe, uh, the, the scribe who did Mrs. Gardner, that was such a long letter. Yes. She just did that one. Um, but no, it is, mm. I probably made it easier for me not to work with multiple. Mm. Right, right, right. Speaking of long letters, Darcy's explanatory letter, which when you get the edition, you can see, you can really see that it is, it is this, this big packet of exposition. <laughs> um, and that was a real treat to, to read in letter form, um, you know, to really, uh, to, to, I mean, imagine like, well, Elizabeth, you know, Jane Austen describes Elizabeth kind of rushing through and 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 kind of being mad about it and then rereading it again just just to to get more detail um and it was really it's it's lovely to have that um have that experience as well well one thing I realized was when you look at all the letters together on their own they tell the story of the novel Mm. I'm sure because it wasn't just an epistolary novel to begin with, and she kept in the ones that really pushed the plot forward. But it is it is impressive all those different voices. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And I came to appreciate, you know, I, I used to not appreciate Jane Bennett so much, but from reading her letters over and over, I did. Uh, because of course Elizabeth is always described as the smart and playful one. But Jane's letters, you know, she's got her deep, her wisdom and intelligence and considered opinions. And Mr. Gardner too, I used to kind of just, but I. I I think, don't we get Jane Bennett changing her mind about Caroline Bigley in a letter? Um, Because there's all this talk between Lizzie and Jane about, um, about, oh, you know, you know, I, uh, Lizzie thinks Jane thinks too highly of the Bingleys and um, Jane thinks Lizzie's not giving them the benefit of the doubt. But when Jane is in London, she writes a letter describing how rude Caroline Bingley has been to her. We see all that in, in a letter, I believe. We do. We do. And at the end, she says she'd be duped all over again by her. Yeah. That she'd fall for it again. Mm-hmm. Which um, In the first two letters in the novel, the first one is by Caroline Bingley. And it's read in the Bennett breakfast parlor. And it's so melodramatic. My sister and I are in danger of hating each other for the rest of our lives unless you come and eat with us. It's so over the top. And they're all there. You know, the whole mm-hmm. family's gathered. It's almost like Caroline Bingley's in the room. Yes. And the next day, of course, a letter comes. They're all sitting around. They're all in the breakfast room again. Only this time, it's Jane. And it's the most self-effacing don't worry, I don't feel well, it's nothing serious, I'm okay. You know, the diametrically opposed to Caroline's. And I did, and yet they're all right back in that same spot reading it. And I just love that Dublin. And in your edition, they are in the same glassine um, envelope uh, bound in um, so that you really see the contrast between the two. Yeah. It's really and, elegant. And, you know, that Jane would have borrowed a sheet of Caroline's writing, mm-hmm. same writing paper. But I really wanted to show the difference in their handwriting too, between Caroline's being sort of fussy and pretentious and mm-hmm. uh, sort of curly and ornamented. And Jane's is just sort of very sweet. 
I noticed Caroline Bingley has the slant that writing masters recommended. Like, you know, you could have put a protractor to it. And uh, I'm just imagining her city, like her, her finishing school upbringing, really fussy, making sure that it's, it's, it's the absolute pinnacle of elegance. And then Jane's is so much more just straightforward, communicative, Maybe, maybe her father taught her to write rather than a master. It's those sort of details that, that just, um, um, you don't need the backstory because the backstory starts telling itself about there. So you mentioned that um, when you initially started looking at letters, all of those postal hand stamps and the handwritten marks on the letters, on the, on the exteriors of each historical letter didn't mean much to you, but you have reproduced um, or or um, even fabricated um, hand stamps and handwritten marks to track the distance that each letter travels between the writer and the recipient. Um, and I love that you created marks for and, and calculated the mileage for the fictional towns. That That's was wild. a brilliant piece of detective work um, to get to get the right number of miles for Meriton. Um, and I wanted to ask. Um, why it was important for you to re reproduce this fine level of historical detail, because, you know, not a lot of readers would have said, you know, we need this uh, for historical accuracy. For me, it thrills me um, and it brings a wonderful level of realism to the experience of reading. But I wanted to I wanted to ask you what was what what that meant for you and and what um, research and resources made that possible. Well, when I embarked on the project, historical accuracy was really important to me because I thought that in order to create that connection, to really feel like you were holding the letter that Elizabeth Bennett had held, it had to be absolutely right. And maybe some of that is the working in TV and film too, is that you're always you know, striving for historical accuracy. But I never considered not trying to get the details right. And that was also part of the fun and, and sometimes part of the agony. But uh, <laughs> I, I really got myself worked up over those postal details. So I um, started, you know, your blog helped and, and other, other, you know, other people writing about how the postal system worked at the time. And I found books on the postal system and the marks, but they were written for collectors. So mm -hmm. they assumed a knowledge of the different, you know, postal, the counties, the postal routes of the United Kingdom and byways and or by roads that I, I really had trouble. They weren't written for the layman. But I had calculated from the novel how many miles were between the different villages that she mentions as much as possible. The London Postal Museum has a really good website and I had been emailing them my questions, but I needed someone with a lot more in-depth knowledge and they recommended that I contact the Midland Postal Historical Society. Because of course there is one. Because there is one. <laughs> And that is how I found this incredible postal historian, Alan Godfrey. So I had created a chart. I had broken it down to where every letter originated, um, how many miles it traveled, 
I had a chart from the time that showed the postal rates, what I thought they would be, what stamps I thought would be appropriate. And I sent it all to him. And he was amazing. I mean, he went through and made all the corrections and I had gaps and holes and he really filled them in. He sent me amazing specific research and, and details. And um, I, I had gotten myself, you know, I was waking up at four in the morning, terrified that when the book came out, thousands of postal historians would point out all my mistakes. <laughs> and um, I'd, be, I'd be publicly humiliated. So uh, that was a huge relief to find him. And then I, once I knew what each one was going to be. I mean, it took many months. Um, and I had these books from, the, from people who collect that put together that show every postal mark variation out there, every village mark, every town mark. And my niece created them on Photoshop for me. And then I had rubber stamps made. And then I physically stamped um, wow. the letters. And then, you know, drawing the numbers and having them scratched out. Should I briefly explain how the postal system? Yeah, that would be really helpful. Yeah. Especially one thing I found in my own research is that um, the postage stamp changed everything. And it is hard to re it is hard to get back to the mindset before before the postage stamp. Yeah. Yeah, it is. So in Jane Austen's time, the recipient paid the postage and it was very expensive. And if the letter was one sheet, that was one rate. If it was two sheets, it doubled the cost for the recipient. So that's why you see these letters where they do the cross writing and they turn the paper you know, 90 degrees and write perpendicular. Anything to get it onto one sheet. And the rate was calculated by the distance the letter traveled as well. So if um, the letter originated in Meriton, it would be stamped at the postal office, which was really the inn, um, because that's where the horses were that were contracted to the Royal Mail that, you know, because they had the Royal Mail carriages that delivered the mail <clears throat> and that also took passengers. So it would be stamped Meriton and then it would be marked, let's say it was going to Mr. Collins, but it would only be marked with the rate to London. So let's say that was six pence. When it got to London, it would be stamped at the London Postal Office, which was huge, that it had arrived. And then the clerk would look up the rate from London to, you know, Rosings. Um, I'm, for some reason, I'm blanking as we talk. Hunsford. Talking. Hunsford. And <laughs> thank you. <laughs> so that increased, that extra mileage, another 20 miles, increased the rate from six pence to seven pence total. So the clerk would scratch out the six and he would write the new rate seven. When the letter got to Mr. Collins, he would pay seven pence to receive it. People had all sorts of ways to communicate with each other and to avoid paying the expense. They would um, write a letter and address it a certain way that would let the person know they were 
doing fine. And then the recipient would, ref- would see it, but refuse to accept it. So they would get the message, but not have to pay for it. And, you know, of course, the letters were also franked. Um, if you knew a member of parliament, then you got free postage. And it was so widely abused that they ended up um, getting. Yeah, I think uh, members of parliament would, would sell or give out as kind of gifts, yeah. pieces of paper that already had their signature on it to, to, to get free postage. Yeah, it comes up in Mansfield Park. Fanny Price gets a letter. Frank, so her poor mother and father don't have to pay to get uh, to get a letter from her. Or is it her? She read it to her, her brother at that time. And um, Edmund puts a guinea under the oh, right. that he can pay for future letters in right. case they're not franked. There's a wonderful, I mentioned in the introduction, a letter that um, Jane Austen writes to her brother Frank. And in it, she says something about how the, the two shillings, three pence, whatever that she paid for his letter, that no, it was totally worth it. And she goes on and on. That is a lot, a lot of money back then. So I'm sure Frank was feeling rather guilty. <laughs> you made her outlay that much money. But. Now, and every letter sent through the Royal Mail goes through London. So that's why the notes that that are exchanged locally are delivered by hand by servants. That you wouldn't be right, you wouldn't be sending sending a letter to somebody who lives in Meryton if you live at Longburn because it would have to go to London first. Faster than I would have thought. You know, Mm. she probably only, that letter from Mrs. Gardner explaining Mm -hmm. why Darcy was at the wedding. I imagined her waiting weeks but it would have sort of been probably, you know, three or four days. Mm-hmm. So <laughs> I was relieved for her. Um, I had that letter sent. That's a very long letter. So mm-hmm. on that letter, I had Mrs. Gardner send it prepaid. Which oh, is, right. Which so is that letter, that stamp is red. It's got a mm-hmm. key on it. And that means that the postage is, has already been paid. Right. I, thought, I thought Mrs. Gardner would do that for her niece. <laughs> if you're going to write a long letter, that's so nice. This, Think about how the character works within the postal postal etiquette and requirements at the time. And in fact, in the primary sources that I looked at, there's a lot of discussion about postal etiquette. Um, oh. That um, yeah, that uh, um, um, well, especially if you're going to be writing a letter to some one of your superiors, um, that you really must use a sealing wax for that. Um, even though there are some sort of lower profile, cheaper options. Oh, interesting. Like the wafer seal. The wafer seal. Yeah. Which is a little, a little bit of um, dried paste that you could stick between the pages. Um, and over time, whether, how appropriate that is, as opposed to sealing wax is, is, is also changes. Um, yeah. Anyway, uh, I could keep talking about the details for ages. Um <laughs> Uh, do we want to talk a little bit about your upcoming project, uh, Little Women with the letters included? Uh, so I know nothing about um, later 19th century letters, especially in the U.S. And so I wanted to hear a little bit from you about what is the most surprising thing that was different about letter writing or these postal practices that you discovered for this new project. Well, because the novel takes place during the Civil War, primarily, there were tons of letters to look at because 
soldiers and their families were exchanging so many letters and they've been saved and archived in libraries and historical societies all across the country. And so I could see handwriting of every family member, um, including lots of kids, where in Austin's time, it was really hard to find anything written by mm. even a teenager. Mm. And people save the letters of the note, you know, mm-hmm. in the libraries and historical societies are the letters of the famous. But with Civil War letters, it's very yeah. everyday. And what really struck me was how there was letterhead, there was stationery, there was lined paper, there was blue ink, there was pencil. It was, the paper was commercially printed and it was wonderful to see um, how many different elements I had to play with. Mm -hmm. So for example, I had no idea that there was patriotic stationery produced for the war effort to really, uh, you know, allow people in the North to show their patriotism and their belief in the cause. And that was really fun, you know, with eagles and soldiers and flags on it. So I used, I definitely recreated that and monogram stationery. And the girls newspaper was, that was very fun. And so um, you already mentioned that there was just a lot more to look at. What about, so one thing that that I'm curious about is that I know that there's this postal history, um, uh, there are postal history societies in the UK, and there are people with extremely minute understanding of exactly um, what's happening in the postal system in the UK. Is there an American counterpart? Uh, um, Are there, are there... uh, Postal history resources here? I have no doubt that there is, but guess what? I did not have to travel that road this time. Because most of the letters are delivered, you know, in you know, the tree trunk between the houses of the marches and and Mm. the And um, the only, you know, there they mail a packet of letters to the father in the hospital, but I didn't, you know, I wasn't going to include a big packet and Mr. March's letter from the war it's a fragment mm. you know we only really get the last page of it so I did not know and when I saw the envelopes though they're very much like what almost like what we have today it's an address and a stamp mm. mm-hmm. letters were being delivered to people's homes by mm-hmm. the mid-1860s but what I did learn, and I couldn't include it in the book, is that I did not realize that the US government stopped delivering mail to the South. So you could not send a letter to the South and the South could not send a letter to the North. And what uh. was, they had these designated areas and at those points, they had a flag of truce and that is where mail could be exchanged. And it was read and censored before it was delivered. So that way prisoners of war, and of course, people who just had other business for family could stay in touch. And the other thing the US government did was they changed all of the postage when they did that so that the stamps that were, would be valueless in the South. In the oh, interesting. You stamps for new ones, but you, you couldn't in the South. And so, oh, it, wow. yeah. So the South had to set up its own its own postal system. Circling back around to one thing that I thought was really interesting when you guys were talking about 
um, the way that letters actually looked versus how um, they are portrayed in like television and film adaptations and how they're very different. What are the what are the differences and like can we speculate as to why they look so different? So my, actually, I'm sure Barbara has much more expertise from working with art departments, but um, my sense is that um, some of it comes from looking at um, online sources, that if you look at, uh, at say, the Morgan's uh, images of Jane Austen's letters online, you'll see them as isolated pages. And that's usually how they are reproduced in, in adaptations as isolated pages that are maybe stuck together with sealing wax, but anyway, layered, layered letter size pages. And the other is that I'm, I'm going to guess, Barbara, tell me if I'm wrong, that mostly they will be um, written or printed out um, rather than kind of crafted as an object. Um, I've certainly seen some some inkjet printing on uh, um, in on you know maps and letters in in uh, in adaptations before. I I think you're I think it's a really good point. I hadn't thought about that, but how they are realized when you do the research. I think some of it is that people reference other movies as opposed to going to the historical research and they look at other movies and that's how it was done. And so that's how it continues to be done. So whoever made that first mistake and didn't do the research is I blame them. Um, I think a lot of it is done in haste, mm -hmm. um, which is really probably the biggest culprit is doing it in haste. But Anna Pinto who did a bunch of the writing on Pride and Prejudice. She does writing for um, Mrs. Maisel and the Gilded Age. Mm. And so I'm sure she brings some to her historical accuracy to the, to the project. But it's true, you never see the letter folded right. the way that it really right. And it's, if, if you look at, well, you know, if you open one of the letters in your, in your book full as a full page, it's hard to read. You really need to read it as an object that you that you open. Um, and so museum museums, when they're you know producing, uh, when they're um, photographing objects, they have to make a decision. Do you do you show the whole object and make it hard to read, or do you photograph each leaf one by one and make it a little easier to read, but then remove the sort of objectness of it? Yeah, that's really interesting. Yeah, I bet that is that. Contribute to that. And <laughs> so I bet that thinking about making reproductions was, I, 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 my, yeah, it really twisted my brain to try and look at some of the letters represented in, in collections online um, because, yeah, they, they, they weren't written for that purpose. Well, <laughs> and creating reproductions was really the best way to understand them and understand the, um, how um, you end up with a, when you fold a letter, you end up with a bit of a grid where there are um, um, flaps that sort of fold in on each other. And in extant letters, you can see where somebody has written a nice clean letter on each side of the page and then decided to add a little more and tuck it under the flap. Yeah. So that um, they might start out very neat and tidy, but then find all of the little corners to add a little another note here or there. Well, Alexandra Morrill, who was the graphic artist I worked with, she did an amazing job having to make sure that the letters folded correctly, that there was mm. enough flap, that the address would be in mm. the right panel and wouldn't get folded when they were mm -hmm. done by hand, that the wax seal lined up when it was folded, that all of that was oh. 
incredibly, incredibly complicated and Chronicle did an amazing job too in figuring out the production of those letters. There was a lot, a lot of back and forth. Wow. Which for little women, they weren't folded in the same way, but mm. all that groundwork definitely mm. helped. But yeah, mm. that was a, everyone on worked very hard to mm-hmm. coordinate all those complicated details. Mm-hmm. Because of course, sealing wax would add so much bulk and material so we just have the stains of the ceiling wax which is which is uh true of of some extant letters that i have so it feels very feels very real yes yeah, some of the letters when mm. i researched still had the the ceiling wax and some some didn't but yeah that would have been really complicated to attach yeah the remnant of <laughs> ceiling wax. so barbara if you want to let us know when is the book coming out where can people find it? And where can they find you on the internet as well? Little Women is coming out on September 14th and will be available everywhere that books are sold. I have a website at barbaraheller.org. Even though I'm not a nonprofit, that's all that was available. And online uh, on Instagram, I'm at Barbara Heller Letters. And I will say... Um, that book is coming out with Chronicle yet again. And um, guys, sign up. I mean, I don't directly work for Chronicle. I have a book out with them. But I will say, sign up for their newsletter, which is like, un- it's not obtrusive, I swear. And you get like coupons all of the time for like 25 or 30% off books. So they make beautiful I books, recommend honestly. It. I'm not, I don't work with them at all. And I say they make beautiful books. <laughs> And we are back. So I could really relate, and I'm sure you can too, Lauren, uh, just to Eleanor talking about how she had this whole plan for the blog and then ended up becoming super focused on letter writing and then through, you know, through the research that she was doing for the blog. And that just reminded me of our journey with Bonnets and just how if you just follow what you're interested in, you end up thinking about all sorts of unexpected like ideas and you end up in these rewarding places and then in Mm -hmm. turn that starts to impact everything you then read and all of the research that you do moving forwards yeah I think um I don't know if I have a career plan anymore (laughs) I've sort of like let that go and I'm just like following what I'm interested in Mm -hmm. and like hoping eventually I get paid for that hope I mean maybe (laughs) we'll see I don't know (laughs) But that's sort of my career path. I'm just like, I'm just seeing where this goes right now. Just vibing with the universe, I suppose. Just vibing. You could say. And in turn, I was also really interested in hearing about Barbara's experience as a location scout and set and set dresser and how that just brought this unbelievable extra level of understanding to Pride and Prejudice. Yeah, absolutely. It's just so good. Like when you read the letters printed on the page, you don't necessarily think about like the ink that they're using or the handwriting and just like all of the mm-hmm. all of the little touches like the calculated mileage and using the fashion plate for Lydia's de- uh, for Lydia's letter. It's just like amazing detail. And I think what I particularly like what I really love about it, um, and I'm not big on owning multiple copies of one book, right? Like you've got to put something really interesting in an edition of Pride and Prejudice at that point, at this point mm-hmm. for me to be like, oh, I want that. Um, 
I think anything which is kind of making you go back to the text, reconsider the text, think about the characters, think about Austin's intention, which I really think Barbara's book is doing. And then, mm-hmm. you know, again, the same with Little Women. I just think that's like a really wonderful way of keeping books alive and like and just pushing what we can do with publishing and like how we interpret yeah. how we interpret classic text. It's also um it changes the reading experience too in that it like forces you to slow down. Mm-hmm. And I think that's really important, especially when you're reading a book like Pride and Prejudice is something I read fairly frequently. Mm-hmm. Um, I used to do like an annual reading, but I haven't had time for that since we started this podcast. But um, it is interesting to like revisit a book that you're you're very used to reading that you can almost recite by heart and then actually slow down and focus on different elements of the book. Mm-hmm. That's fascinating. So I hope I hope she keeps going with this idea. That'd be it's fun. It's cool. So huge thanks to Eleanor and Barbara for joining us on the show. You can find them both on the internets at barbaraheller.org and her reputation for accomplishment.wordpress.com. And Hannah, where can the people find us if they are curious to know what we are up to? You can find us as always on Instagram and Twitter at bonnets at dawn. You can email us at bonnets at dawn at gmail.com. You can join our very lively discussion group on Facebook by searching for bonnets at dawn and you can buy our book bonnets at dawn. Just kidding baked you out why she wrote it's called why she wrote wherever you usually get your literary fix